Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from our coverage of Nash Tag 2023, plus the discussion that Jorn Schottenberg, Histoin X Chief Scientific Officer, Dean Tai, and I held about Histoin X's zonal analysis of fibrosis, which you can find as part of episode two for season four. This conversation includes Scott Friedman, Rachel Zayas, Louise Campbell, and Jorn Schottenberg. I start by asking the group to describe their sit-up-and-take-notice moment of the meeting, and Scott responds by what he describes as the 800-pound gorilla, the resmeterone data, which placed an umbra, as he put it, around everything else in the meeting, a light and optimism. Scott went on to discuss other key points, great results for other drugs in earlier-stage trials and NITs. Rachel agrees with Scott and also mentions Maru Ranella's nomenclature talk and other discussions of combination therapies. Jorn praises the high energy level and well-rounded nature of the talk, and Louise points to previously unpublished afroxifermin data from the Harmony trial that suggested, at least to her, we can place drugs in primary care practices if we also assure they have appropriate tools and tests to monitor patients. Scott mentioned what he described as the most staggering number of the meeting, that only 3% of patients treated for NASH are treated by hepatologists. Jorn concurred that this was a number that made him set up and take notice. Scott then referred back to Will Alazawi's presentation on pathways, and a brief presentation from Siemens evaluating four different test strategies in terms of cost and prediction. I comment that the wealth of NIT data is actually starting to point to simple strategies for use in clinical trials and treating patients. The uses may vary, but the paths seem clear. Fagan's nomogram, which Mike Charlton presented the first day, was the moment at which the paths became clear to me. I asked Scott to describe what he considers most pivotal here. He goes on to discuss the need to identify non-responders better and to figure out how we're going to do that. Jorn agrees with the profundity of that statement and, in that context, calls into question whether our definition of responder might change from fibrosis regression to something more broadly metabolic. And as the talk winds down, Louise notes that we've seen some promising data about combination therapies once again. And Scott notes that we have far more scientific ways to approach combination therapy and optimal drug combinations than simply seeing what drugs a company has in its portfolio, which is what too much of the work has been so far. NASH Tech 2023 was a watershed moment for fatty liver disease, the place where exciting drug development readouts, powerful academic work on non-invasive tests, and the willingness to dive into the toughest questions aligned in a meeting that Scott Friedman described as being like drinking out of a fire hose. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, ponder, listen again if you need to. And when you're done, join the conversation in our LinkedIn discussion group. What I would like each of you to do at the, at the beginning is see if you can isolate one thought, one moment, one concept, one intriguing thing you heard this morning that was particularly a sit up and take notice kind of thing. Uh, brave one, go first. Scott Friedman. Well, maybe I'll jump in. The 800 pound friendly gorilla here is, of course, the magical news, which I would say casts rather than a pall, it casts an umbra of sunlight around everything related to the Nash tag. So suddenly everything, just like I have a joke, everything tastes better at the beach. Everything at, at the Nash tag suddenly becomes more important because this is going to be moving into patients as an approved drug unless there's something completely unexpected. So it means everything we're talking about really has to accelerate. So, you know, among those tremendous progress and the non-invasive markers, greater identification of correlates with improvement, particularly in the FGF21, increasing coalescence around the study design and why they're important. And ultimately, you know, the prospect of biopsy-free future, albeit perhaps outside of clinical trials and a range of different drugs. Many, many questions 
questions unsolved, I'm happy to get onto that. But take. Okay. And for one minute, that was pretty amazing. That was about as intense as the meeting was. Well done. Um, well, it is, and I use the same analogy, drinking from a fire hose, I think, when Rachel and I were talking. Rachel's eyes. Yeah, I really do have to mimic what Dr. Friedman just outlined, where I don't think there's a single person in this room or at this conference that has not been affected by the magical positive readout just a few weeks ago. So just the narrative has changed. It's been a great focus of the conference, and it's going to usher us into this new year with just a really different perspective. Other things which we can dive deeper into later, nomenclature by Dr. Ranella. There are some really interesting points there. Discussions around combination therapy and what that looks like and what's most important there is really interesting. And last but not least, some other talks that we'll go into later. So those are the big ones for me. Jörn Schottenberg. I think I gave part of my thinking this morning already, and I think I'd like to echo Rachel and Scott on the positive energy that's here. The room is packed. It's my first in-person attendance. I don't have a good comparison, but it feels there's a lot of things going on. And the organizers really try to address the important aspects, you know, from NITs. There was some clinical trial data presented now as a distinguished um, abstracts, which was very interesting. It breaks in and, and adds to the biomarker discussion that was followed by that. And as such, I think it's, you know, it's a rounded up, very well composed program. And I enjoyed it tremendously. Louise, question on the floor is one thing you heard that, although that's not exactly the question people answer, one thing you heard that you found particularly gobsmacking or fascinating or, or uh, changing your vision of of how the world comes together. Louise Campbell. I think for me this morning, it was the previously unpublished effects of Fermin data. We're looking at um, the Harmony Phase 2 fast scores and actually looking at that, that shows you that you could put a drug into a primary care area for me and use a real world point of care device to correlate with the outcomes of somebody going on to treatment in the future in a primary care area. Now, I know they presented a lot of other data but this was just one thing that we've not seen before. So it was new evidence that's to be published in the future. But you were able to see the complete pathway on that line. And if you can do that with resmeterone, um, abetacolic acid, it becomes a manageable disease in primary care, which is what we've wanted for the majority of people with fatty liver. So I think that for me was a, a potential game changer. Several years coming, but very important data that was released. You know, as apropos of that, it was yesterday, but Mike Charlton presented a stunning statistic that only 3% of patients with fatty liver disease are actually being seen by gastroenterologists, hepatologists, 97% in the primary care, internal medicine, diabetology realms. I noted that number, Scott, and I wrote it down too. I didn't write as many notes as you did, but that number I noted down. And it's really up to us in the field now to use those NITs. You know, I said today, I think we have all the NITs we need to identify the patients and support these primary care physicians and referring the real ones at need. So I think that that's a big number. I, for me, that was also big news. Yeah, and there was a great talk yesterday, I guess, from William Alazawi, who is defining what care pathways are, how they work, and what they're good for, and I thought that was helpful. And then a very interesting brief presentation this morning by folks from Siemens who tested out four different models of different sequences of non-invasive tests that yielded either the highest predictive value of fibrosis or the lowest cost. So clearly, how we translate these things to primary care and internal medicine is front and center. Yeah, so we don't talk about this a lot. 
on this podcast, but one of my fascinations forever has been systems theory and complexity. And I've always said that I'm a big fan of complexity and I hate complication. People don't see the difference, but complication is a lot of data points you can't make sense out of. And complexity is finding the through line. And what it kind of feels like I'm watching, at least to me, is finding a whole bunch of two through lines that matter about NITs. One to NITs in clinical trial and another to NITs in practice. And they're not going to be the same through line. They're not going to be used the same way, but they're both pivotal. Because if you don't have one, you can't keep developing better drugs. And if you don't have the other, you can't get them used right. But it, it almost feels like both those things are emerging here in parallel. And I find that I'm going to use the word thrilling, which is not a word I use a ton. I find that thrilling because then I start to understand how this whole thing can come together. All right. F Fagan's nomogram, which I'd never seen before, completely knocked me over yesterday. And it wasn't the only thing, but it was the, the first moment where I said, boy, this could get really clear really fast. So with that, I think we're all talking about the energy, the enthusiasm, and the big picture, which is one part drugs, but one or more parts, NITs and everything else we're learning around the disease. Scott, you do this so well. I'm just going to ask you, uh, take a couple of minutes and at a high level, what are you seeing that you think is most pivotal and how do you see it coming together? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, now that we have a drug that's going to meet both primary endpoints and is nearing highly likely approval, then we have to ask, number one, why did it work? Was it just a reduction in liver fat? Are there mechanisms unique to this? Because we know that not every patient who has reduced liver fat has a benefit in NASH, although more do than not. So dig down a little bit deeper in understanding what distinguishes the responders from the non-responders in this trial, how much of that is translatable to other mechanisms of action. It's the first time I had heard and been very important to me is what do we do with the patients who don't respond? Remember the Madrigal trial, 26% at the higher dose had a fibrosis benefit that left 74% of patients without. What's different about those? How are we going to manage those? And when this drug is being given in clinical practice, how are providers going to know their drug isn't working? So this is the first time I've heard really emphasis on tracking the disease in patients on therapy to assess response because patients don't want to be on a drug that isn't working for them. They want something that is. And of course, payers aren't going to pay for drugs that aren't working. So you got 75% roughly of magical treated patients in an ideal situation of a placebo controlled clinical trial. 75% roughly are not responding. We need to learn more about them, how to identify them early and in practice, how to get them off the drug on onto something that might be more beneficial. And how do we decide what that second drug might be? This is such an important statement, Scott. And the one thing that I would say is, you know, the way we define response today is the improvement of fibrosis by one stage on liver biopsy. And that's a regulatory endpoint, but it might not be all the benefit the patient experience. And while it's the one that's linked to a liver outcome, that's important. You know, they, they're, they'll probably, I think they have a pretty robust LDL lowering. You could uh, choose other drugs that probably outperform this. And the time point of the biopsy is always have to be kept in mind. So it then comes to the question, how much money do we spend for this drug? And if they're not showing the histological benefit, are there other benefits they could have? But if it's an important drug, we can't keep them on. I think that that's the things that I come to my mind. So I think the exciting thing is the conversation has changed. We finally have a therapeutic with a clear pipeline forward. But a conversation that I believe uh, Vlad Ratsu, a talk that he gave yesterday, is what is the best approach forward with a combinational therapy? Because as Dr. Friedman just outlined, 75% of patients are not responding. So there's a lot of room for improvement here. So do we have a simultaneous treatment with another therapeutic in a different pathway? Do we have a sequential treatment with a second therapy or is it like a booster? And how do we answer these questions? A point of discussion that has come up in this conference as well as previous conferences is what's the best timeline to look at the benefits to patients and the primary endpoints? Are we not giving patients enough time? Should they be in two to three year trials? And what does that look like? So I think that there are a lot of questions now being asked that we 
we don't have the answers to, but the discussion has started. So that's the first point. And I find that really interesting and compelling because there's a lot of room for growth here um, just, just from this perspective. I think I'd just echo that. And I think we've seen some data this morning that looked at using AI to look at non-responders and responders in biopsy samples. The excitement about the discussion this morning is this moving it beyond the outcomes for clinical trials in the real world. And I think Naeem opened up with his slide going biopsy is dead in real world care, but it's not dead in outcomes for trials and the measurements for trials. So I think the evidence this morning is fairly strong and compelling on not only being able to predict therapeutic response, but to be able to predict outcomes depending on that on some of the NITs. But we'll gather more evidence as the trials go. I echo what everybody said. It's a game changer, but we do need to address, and we discussed it briefly in yesterday's recording, the other 75% of people who will be targeted with something else or a second therapy. And there was some very good data from yesterday on the semaglutide, Gilead combinations that they use. I think, yes, they're in trial, they're early, but we're moving there and that's really exciting. Well, I'll make an editorial comment about combinations. And I know I've said this in a prior podcast. The approach currently for combinations is frankly anti-intellectual or I don't want to go so far, but it's almost irrational because it's driven by which two drugs a company has or has access to some vague notion that one is more anti-inflammatory and another is more antifibrotic, another is more anti-steatotic and hoping, you know, basically putting your finger in the air and hoping that the wind blows in the right direction and you see a benefit. And that clearly is not working. There are so many wonderful systems for doing a medium and a high throughput analysis of not just efficacy of drugs, but molecular mechanisms. And I'm talking about organoid cultures. There was one presentation yesterday. There's very mature work being done uh, by Takebe in Cincinnati and by CROs like Insphero and others that you could line up different drugs. You can interrogate the genes and how they're affected. You could look for synergies and you could screen dozens and dozens of combinations at a different dose range. And then even if they're established drug, and then use that information to test it either in animals or in people. Because just embarking on the 12, 18 month combination trials because the company has access to two drugs that are somewhat different is really wasting a lot of energy and time. And it reflects our naivete about the real pathogenesis of this disease. Is it the fat? Is it the inflammation? Is it the ballooning? Is it a little bit of everything? Uh, And hopefully those will start to clarify as we ask the kind of questions I posed uh, earlier of, you know, how does resmetaram work and why doesn't it work? And it wastes a lot of money too. And I think the field was still driven by some companies that tended to take that as an approach trying to score bullseye. But I agree with you, Scott, it should be evidenced and scientific rational should be strong before you do that because it's much more complex. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episodes from NASHTAG, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com and we'll try to get you some support. We will be back next week. Our topic is in flux due to some commercial considerations, but whatever we do will be interesting, energized, and follow in the spirit of this amazing meeting. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.